Would you stand with me as we uh, stand in honor the reading of God's word today? Scripture reading is from Acts 28 and from 2 Timothy 4. When we got to Rome, Paul was allowed to live by himself with a soldier to guard him. For two whole years, Paul stayed there in his own rented house and welcomed all who came to see him. He proclaimed the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. For I am already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time for my departure is near. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. At my first defense, no one came to my support, but everyone deserted me. May it not be held against him, but the Lord stood at my side and gave me strength so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. Amen. You may be seated. Being back to school Sunday, as you can see, we're talking about running our race, about uh, moving through our our trip in life, and especially for those of us who are students. And as we do that, as you can see, we're looking at the very end of the book of Acts, and at the very end of the life of the Apostle Paul. Uh, For students, for, for parents of students, for educators, and for all those who support them, which is like everybody here, let's ask, what do we need to know? What can we learn from these words that can help us run our race in school, life, at home, and finish well in the end? Well, the end of Acts and the end of Paul's life show us three things. They show us, first of all, that the struggle is real, that your race is long, and that faith can be kept. Let's begin here, number one, and, and see what Paul is saying here. And I don't know about you, but when I come to the book of Acts, and again, we've been moving through Acts for a, a number of months, but when we come to the book of Acts and we, we get to that ending and you get to those last words, I don't know about you, but I think that's it. That's it. That's the end of the book. That's kind of like a bummer of an ending. It's like the, that TV show Lost, right? Remember that show? Great show, unresolved ending. We don't know what happens, right? No big action scene. Death Star doesn't blow up here at the end of Acts. Paul doesn't get the girl. We don't know what happens. He's in prison. Curtain goes down. Book ends. What's up with that? What happened to Paul? How did his life end? Well, as church tradition tells us, Paul didn't actually face Caesar. Church tradition holds that this time uh, was his first time in prison here at the end of Acts. He's there for two years. His accusers never show up, and Paul is released, and he goes home. But then he's arrested again. He faces imprisonment again, and he's executed after his second imprisonment for treason, for being an enemy of the state of Rome. So Luke ends Acts during Paul's first time in jail. But during his second time in jail, Paul, knowing he's likely about to die, writes something to his protege, Timothy. And this is what he says. The last will and testament of the apostle Paul. He says, Timothy, he says, I have fought the good fight. Next scripture. I have fought the good fight. Go to the next slide. Yeah. 
I fought the good fight. There we go. Fought the good fight. And when you hear this, you may think of the, like a boxing ring. Right? I have fought the good fight, the boxing ring, or like a back alley beat down of sorts. But that's not what Paul is saying here. The word for fight is the Greek word agon, where we get the word agony or to agonize. The word literally means struggle. Agon means struggle. Paul is saying, I have struggled the good struggle. Now, that didn't sound nearly as epic as I have fought the good fight, which is why nobody amen me there. But that's what he means. He's saying there is a great struggle he has struggled his whole life against, and he has emerged victorious And that struggle. What's Paul's struggle? Well, he doesn't mention it here, but most commentators, theologians believe the closest we get to seeing it is over in Romans chapter 7, when Paul talks about the struggle in every human being's heart between right and wrong, between good and evil, between the spirit and the flesh. And here's how he puts it. He says, so I find this law work. He's saying, here's my struggle. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. In my inner being, I delight in God's law, but here's my struggle. I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner. C.S. Lewis had something to say about the same struggle. C.S. Lewis talks about our internal struggle like this. He says, hell begins with a grumbling mood, always complaining, always blaming others, but you're still distinct from it. You maybe even criticize it in yourself and wish you could stop it, but there may come a day when you can no longer. Then there'll be no you left to criticize the mood or even to enjoy it, but just the grumble itself going on forever like a machine. It is not a question of God sending us to hell. In each of us, there is something growing which will be hell unless it's nipped in the bud. How do we handle this struggle? How do we nip hell in the bud, so to speak? Well, first we should just acknowledge what both Paul and Lewis and theologians have said, and they show us that this is what they show us. They show us that my tendency over time, here's my struggle, is to make life all about me. They show you that your tendency over time, your struggle, is to make life all about you. That's the struggle, and the struggle is real. And if and when you get married, you just stretch that circle a little wider, and then you you find out your tendency, your struggle is to make life all about you, the twosome of you, just the two of us. And you you have uh, children, stretch that circle a little wider, and you find out, man, my tendency is to make it all about me and my wife and my kids, our family, what our family are doing. And that's not malicious, that's just a struggle, and the struggle is real. Life can become just all about your family's trips, career, vacation. And because the struggle is real, then we come into a church, and we think the church should be all about us and meet our needs and speak to us right where we are. I mean, I can't tell you how many times I hear, I was hoping to come to church, Morgan, like you drop the coin in the vending machine and out comes the personalized, tailored sermon just for you. But listen, I don't think you need that as much as you think you need that. Because do you know what speaks to you right where you are? Almost everything about your life in America, right? I mean, you got Netflix, personalized, instant content. 
Social media feeds, you can tailor right to your specifications, even the ads on the, you know, Yahoo News articles, news articles, right? Yahoo News articles, even the ads are like from stuff that you bought, it's all tailored to you, and if you like most Americans, you watch the news that you want, right? And as you get older, these patterns go deeper, and they go deeper and deeper, your mind gets up, made up, you want what you want, you do what you want, you say what you feel, and that's why when you were a kid, you looked at your grandmother, Wearing her crazy hat or crazy lipstick, right? And she says something outrageous. And she said, Grandma, you can't say that. And she looks at you and she says, oh, child, I've lived this long. I can do what I want. I can say what I feel. And you recoil, right? You gasp, oh, the horror. Granny, you can't say that. You say, I'll never become that. There you go. So you don't need a church speaking right to you as much as you need a church speaking against you. Speaking against you. Do you understand that? Paul says, I've got a struggle. You've got a struggle. Your spirit wants to do what's right, but daily your nature is to turn back towards yourself and to quote the great prophet Jim Gaffigan. You want to look at, look at yourself while you work on yourself. Look at yourself while you work on yourself. You need a church, therefore, that helps you in that struggle and helps you go against the grain of you. And if all the church is is a place where you come to feel cozy, don't read the book of Acts, prison. Don't read the end of Paul's life, right? Prison again. See, what do we do about this? Well, one way to make sure that church is never about us is to have the bedrock conviction, a firm grasp on the reality and the truth, and a forever decision that our church, this church, is going to be about reaching the next generation. About reaching people who, I'm, I'm sorry, you may not have heard me. All right, I'm going to say that part again, because that's what you came here for. A forever decision, we're going to be about reaching people who aren't here yet. People coming behind us, the next generation. Because isn't it true that for those of you who are parents, those of you who are some kind of, you know, Tio or Tia, aunt or uncle to some niece or nephew you have, at some point you've turned to someone younger, either your child there's someone else's child that you're teaching in M kids, or your niece or nephew, and you've looked down and said, sooner or later, baby, you're going to have to learn that life isn't all about you, right? And when you say that, you feel so good, don't you? You feel so wise. You feel so wise. And I feel wise when I say it to my kids. But it's never wise if I say that to my wife, by the way, because that's not called fighting the good fight. That's called starting the bad fight. And ain't nobody got time for that. So, yeah. But if it's true for your kids or for your niece or nephew, it's just true for you as well. Life isn't about you. The church isn't about you. It's about others and especially the next generation. We do children's ministry here. And you ought to get involved with it. We do youth ministry here, campus ministry here. We're going to reach students. That's why we're here today. It's actually why I'm here today, because we can't, a lot, a lot of, lots of factors with that, but part of it is a campus ministry. And if that vision sort of rankles you, bothers you, if you even thought today about staying home because you knew it was going to be about the kids, good, good, I'm glad it irritates you. That shows you we're helping you in your struggle. 
helping you go against the grain of you. Don't you want to be a part of something that lasts longer than your lifetime? I do. I do. How do we do that? We make it always, always, always about those who are coming next. The struggle is real. We tend to make everything about us, but Paul is saying, oh, Timothy, by God's grace, I haven't let that be me. I poured my life into you, Timothy. I struggled the good struggle. I've made it to the end by not making it about me. That's number one. Paul shows us the struggle is real. Number two, we also learn that the race is long. The race is long in life. Again, Paul says here, I have finished the race. It, not quite what it seems because when you and I, when we hear that word race, here's what we think of. We think of speed, power, and glory. <laughs> Usain Bolt blowing past the finish line. We think Paul's saying, I have sprinted the great sprint. Speed, power, glory. No, the word race here really means something more like a long course. Go look it up, your translation. Most of them say, I have finished my course, my unpredictable, long and winding road in life. That's what he's saying. I've finished my crazy trail. What does this tell us? It tells us that to make it in life, school, we don't need speed or power as much as we need something else altogether. Let me try to show you what I mean. I have a small group of these close pastor friends I go and I do a prayer retreat with every year. We mostly sit around and just pray for each other and open our lives and ministries up to each other and it's a great time. And the, the highlight thing we do every year is usually just to go and go on a, a short little hike and we hike the same mountain in Colorado and usually it's just up and down and make sure you bring some water like a granola bar or something and we come back, see some views, it's all good. But this year... It went a little differently. Things didn't go according to plan. It started off differently when someone in our group said, why don't we try a new trail? (laughs) We'll go up this way, come down a different way. We said, sounds great. What could go wrong, right? It'll be a little further. We'll see some new stuff. All good. So the five of us started out, and you may know a couple of them. One of them is my friend James Lowe. He's a six foot three, 275 pound brother from inner city Detroit, or Detroit as he says. You know, he's like my twin. So none of them is my friend, my friend Donnell, who you saw here two weeks ago if you were here. And so we're up there and we get going and we take this uh, different loop and we, yes, we've got the map they gave us. But after a while, it became clear that either the map was wrong or the trail wasn't marked. But after a couple of hours in, we've got no idea where we are. We're up to 12,000 feet. It starts to rain. I may not be a smart man, Jenny, but I know when we're about to be in trouble. And so uh, my friend who proposed the new trail, he and I huddled over the map and decided to forge ahead. We're not going to tell the others we're lost. And Another hour and a half later, we're still walking. We haven't seen anyone else out there for hours. About the three-hour mark, Donnell gets altitude sickness. He's dizzy, short of breath, legs starting to cramp. We've got to stop every five minutes. At the four-hour mark, we're about to give up. And we come to this intersection with this abandoned ski lift. <laughs> Somewhere in Colorado. And my friend James, all 275 pounds of him, I think is about to go see Jesus when he sees this sign. Sees this sign. Now do the close-up on it. It also says, warning. (laughs) Warning, you're leaving the resort. You can die. 
He pulls out his cell phone. We're thinking, who are you going to call? He dials a number, doesn't look at any of us, and the person on the other line picks up and he says, hey, baby, it's me. (laughs) And here's what he says. Without looking back at us, he says, baby, I just want you to know that if I don't make it back, (laughs) he said, tell the kids I love them. Where are we? I don't know, baby. Dan and Morgan got us lost. (laughs) Pray for us. He says, I don't know how much longer I can make it. The sun, the sun is starting to set. We don't know where we are. Finally, we see a trail that's marked on the map. We figure out where we are. So my friend Dan and I, we go back to the group and we say, we got good news and bad news. The good news is we know where we are. The bad news is we're miles away from getting back. And we've hiked as far as you can on this mountain. And we're miles back to the, to the ride down. So James just, he hears this. He looks at me, turns around and starts walking. Some of you brothers are saying that sounds about right. That's why you never go out into the woods with white people, right? So, all right. Now, I don't say this to any of them, but I'm nervous about this gondola even being open because it takes you miles up the thing. It's hours after the ticket office is closed, but sure enough, we make it to the gondola, the drop-off point. It's still open and running. We hold each other and cry I'm just kidding. We didn't do that. That didn't, that didn't happen. That part, I made that part up. But we do get on. We go down. As we're getting on, we ask the attendant, how long is this thing running? He's like, how long? Well, he said, you guys are lucky. Any other night of the week, this thing would have been closed. But tonight only, there's something happening at the bottom, and we kept the thing open. Yeah. So we looked at each other wide-eyed. Could have gotten real ugly. So we ride the gondola down. The st- sun sets. And we stagger back to our room and call it a night. We don't even talk to each other. <laughs> but the next morning, I woke up. Another day. And my eyes, as my eyes opened, the Lord began to speak to me about the whole thing. And he said, Morgan, he says, you went further than you ever would have on your own. And you went further than you ever could have on your own. Because you weren't on your own. You went further than you ever would have, further than you ever could have, because you weren't on your own. See, life is unpredictable. The course is long. You get lost sometimes, and to make it, you don't need speed or power as much as you need strength. You need strength, and one of the primary ways we get this in our lives is through Christian community, through the community God's placed in our life. And I'm appealing to you. This year, if you're not to be involved in a community group, over time, let me tell you, your satisfaction, I'm just going to be real honest and cut to the chase, your satisfaction in a local church will not be determined by the preaching or by the music, but by the people that you choose to relate to, give to, love, and serve, and you love them because you serve them. And this fall, we'll be doing, I'll talk about it later, a big community group journey. I'll come back to that later, but now's the time to find your group to make it on the course. If you're a student here, especially for you, the right kind of group to travel with is crucial. One of the reasons I could make it in college as a college student is because I wasn't looking to my teammates to provide me with a sense of community or identity like I did in high school, but I had a Christian community loved me, supported me, was there for me. See, you've got a race, you've got a course, you've got a trail. You can go further than you ever would or could on your own because you won't be on your own. The struggle is real. The race is long. And finally, Paul shows us that faith can be kept. 
Paul says this. He says, I have kept the faith. That's amazing. I have kept the faith. How can he say that? He's not bragging here. He's stating a fact. How can he say he's done this? Look at what he says next, verse 16. He says, at my first defense, no one came to my support. Ever felt that way? Yeah. He says, but everyone deserted me, maybe even including Timothy. Paul's talking about one of the lowest moments in his life. He was on trial. It was going so badly, no one came to the courtroom to support him, either from fear, lack of faith, and of course, but look at how he handles this. Does Paul fly off the handle? Does he go on a rant just to keep it real? No, look at what he says. May it not be held against him. Who do you think that sounds like? Oh, may it not be held against him. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. How did Paul make it? Even when all his friends, even his community deserted him. Verse 17, but, but, the Lord stood at my side and gave me strength. I want to tell you today, if you are going to keep the faith all the way to the end and finish well, you have to, have to have this in your life. I remember many years ago as a a college baseball player, and especially if you're a student here, I want you to listen to this. I was the only Christian on the team, and everyone else there ignored me and what I had to say about Jesus. Like, my kids ignore my wife when she tells them to put on sunscreen. Anyway, that's another bad fight. But they mocked me, ridiculed me over and over again for my faith, cursed me. They would put pornography at my locker daily to try to, you know, get under my skin and make me stumble. And I sat all alone on trips. All alone on meals, there's the team, there's little Morgan, you know, over there. It's not quite Paul in prison. But still, let's admit it, most of us aren't going to be the Paul in prison. Oh, I hope you're not. But at some point, you'll feel like everybody's deserted you. Well, what are you going to do then? My last home game, I came back, sat on the steps of the dugout, right there, the sun's shining. I knew my time playing baseball was going to come to an end. I was angry, confused, didn't know what I was going to do next. But in that moment, with the sun shining on the field, I felt Jesus come, stand by my side. He said, I want you to know, I have seen you out here every day. I want you to know, I have seen you share me with him day after day after day, and it's not going to be in vain. And you know what? It wasn't. The next year after I finished playing, there was a revival on the team. Student after athlete after athlete came in on Jesus. Multiple of them went into vocational ministry, serving God to this day. One of them was on the news this last week in Houston, pulling people in his boat out of homes. So to see 20 years ago, bearing fruit today. Behind those sunglasses, I could weep. I could let go of the frustration and the bitterness because the Lord had come and stood by my side. I knew he had seen me. He was my defender, advocate. He was going to take care of it all. Do you feel alone in life today? Maybe in your school. Maybe in your marriage. Maybe in your friendships. You feel deserted by others. And you know what? You just might be. You might be. You might be all alone. You might be a single parent. You feel like, man, I'm doing this all by myself. You know, in a way you are, but in a way you never will. You never will. 
Because we have a God who will come and stand by our side. And I want you to know today, this is for you. This promise is for you. I want you today to reach out and take hold of this. Lord, would you come and stand by my side? Lord, would you come and be my defender? No, one, no matter if everyone in my courtroom has deserted me, no matter if all my friends have left me and abandoned me, oh, Jesus, you're going to come and stand by my side. If you'll reach out to him today and open up your heart and see maybe what you've never seen before, Jesus standing by your side in the middle of your situation. See, the Bible isn't about God preventing people from going through hard things. It's not. Oh, don't follow him if that's what you want. Peter, Paul, Jesus, apostles, killed. Job suffered horrendously. But the Bible is about a God who meets people in the middle of their suffering. There are hard things and somehow works it for good when nothing else can or ever could. See, the Bible is about a God, like in Paul's life, a God who works it all out. Aren't we here because in many ways of Paul today? Was his life or death in vain? I don't think any of us would say that. He showed us the struggle is real. We need something to go against the grain of us. Our course is long. We need Christian community. And faith can be kept when we see we have a God who's by our side. And he will work all things for his glory.